Well, hello, greetings, greetings, and welcome to another edition of the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name, of course, is Harold Nickel. And before we get into the interview segment, we're going to take a look at the news from the world of Agile. And there's quite a bit to talk about this week. First off, from engineering.com, we learn about PCT's Agile Works. It's an industry-first Agile software solution. And of course, Ren has talked about tools for Agile before. Agile Works from PTC gives users the visibility to bring software systems and hardware teams together to streamline operations and find impediments that are blocking progress. Specifically designed to meet the unique needs of manufacturers building complex, smart, and connected products, Agile Works is an industry first that aims to solve the problems that arise when applying Agile. And of course, just like all of the news items that we talk about here on the Guardian podcast, there's a link to engineering.com and this article. There's a new Agile Leadership Academy called simply the Agile Leadership Academy, and it's going to launch its first session in September, specifically September the 12th, 2016, in Washington, D.C., a day before the Agile D.C. Executive Summit. It's being founded by Sanjeev Augustine and Arlen Bankston. They are very well known in the Agile community, of course, and it's a very fast-paced graduate-style leadership program. Again, it's uh, the 12th of September in D.C., and for more information, we have a link to the Agile Leadership Academy website. And if you want to read the whole article, we have a link to Benzinga. Benzinga is where you'll find this release. And I've never quite understood what Benzinga is. It's somebody's name, but they report a lot of news from science and technology. The Scrum Alliance has a new video titled Agile Education Compass. And the subject of the video is what does it mean for an educator to be agile? Discover how the education community is adapting Agile to be used in a 21st century classroom. And the link is at the scrumalliance.org. And there is a link to just that video. It's about five and a half minutes long. And it's uh, very useful and informative. Finally, from CIO.com, addressing the Agile fear factor during enterprise resource program upgrades. This is a terrific article that talks about how difficult it is to really persuade a company to make any changes out of the fear that something else could break in the process. This is something that um, people have always been fearful of, particularly CIOs. Change is always scary. And the article says, even if we are sick and tired of our current situation or have outgrown it, at least it's familiar. We can operate within it and negotiate familiar obstacles with relative ease. With any new situation comes new potential for discomfort and loss. Our worst-case scenarios and worrisome what-ifs can keep us from feeling our way into a better reality. And one of the things that Ren will talk about during the interview segment is change and fear of change and how that gets managed and change management communications is something that Ren often talks about and something that's of particular interest to 
myself and others who are in the audience. Okay, as always, we'll have these posted on the Ren Melberg website, which is www.renmelberg.com. Stay tuned for the interview segment coming up next here on the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. This week on the interview segment, we're going to do something different. Ren will be doing the interview. She will be chatting with Paul Ellerby. Now, Paul is from the Scrum Alliance and has over 20 years' experience in the information technology field. Among many other things, Paul is a certified Scrum professional, certified Scrum master, and a certified Scrum product owner. He sounds like a very interesting person, and I know I'm looking forward to hearing more from him. So, Ren, take it away. Thank you, Harold. I'm very happy to be talking with Paul today. Um, Paul, we wanted to get together and talk about Agile leadership, which we've done previously, but people weren't listening in, um, and also talk about what it takes from leadership to make an Agile transformation successful. But I thought where we'd start is why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm sure it's more than a list of certifications and letters behind your name. Yes, I, I hope so. Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to talk with you. This is great. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am a member of the Scrum Alliance, a member of the Agile Alliance. I work with a company. I work for a company called Solutions IQ, out of uh, Redmond, Washington. Um, we are about 150, I think, um, consultants working out of that organization. I think we are the largest agile coaching organization in the U.S. Pure agile coaching organization. So we don't we don't write software, we don't um, do much else, but we're, we are really focused on agile and helping organizations grow their in their agile practices. Got into this um, oh back in 1998. Uh, back then I was with EDS. You may remember them. They've been around quite a long time. Um, now part of uh, HP, I believe. And when mm-hmm. I was running a piece of business in the Pacific Rim, um, I had. Mm-hmm, probably about a thousand people in my organization. I was, I was vice president uh, with EBS. So about a thousand people, um, and I met this gentleman in, in England of all places, um, who introduced me to some of the techniques that we now know are, are basically Scrum. So stand-ups, uh, writing code quickly and releasing it quickly, and actually showing it to your customers. What a novel idea back then. Uh, breaking <laughs> down progress into working software and measuring progress in working software rather than time spent or hours in chairs or um, you know, things like that. Uh, and honestly, I've been a believer ever since. Um, I, I left EBS and started working uh, with my own small company. Actually, it was my wife's own small company. Uh, we had seven people, but a lot of good-sized clients, GE, um, 3M, uh, people like that, and we would only work in an agile way. Uh, so I've been around this world for a long time, and my real focus is on is on delivery. Uh, I help teams deliver software. That's really what it's about. That's great. You've been involved in the Agile community, like you said. Can you share your experiences with the Twin Cities community? And sort of, are there any uniquenesses in the Twin Cities Agile community? Um, we have a fairly active community here in terms of the number of people who um, are in the Agile world. And, uh, and honestly, there's a, there's a really long history of Agile being used in the Twin Cities. Um, 
I don't quite know why. I think it's just one of those accidents of, of people being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but there are some some very good agilists here, and a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, of course, who are using mm-hmm. or trying to use agile, uh, large and small. Um, there are a number of conferences around here, and even things like uh, uh, No Fluff, Just Stuff, and, and other technical conferences uh, get into agile quite a lot. So it's not just the agile conferences you want to look for, but almost any of the of the good technical conferences too spill over into agile. Um, one thing that I do find in the Twin Cities, though, that's mm-hmm. not not terribly unusual for a big city, um, is that the the career path of people is interesting. Um, in that people get into agile, they become scrum masters, and then after a while, they they want to hang hang out the shingle as coaches. Uh, and I certainly don't want to cause controversy or offend anybody here, uh, but there's a lot more to coaching than being a scrum master for a year or two. Uh, and so what I found in the Twin Cities is that there are a lot of people who say they're coaches, but have no no depth of experience in actually delivering projects, um, and indeed haven't suffered any of the, the agonies and problems of delivering. I think it, it, it takes a lot of failure to begin a good coach. Um, uh, oh, that, I'm I so do, glad you brought that up. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what when I'm, when I'm interviewing to, to fill positions, um, which I find I'm doing more and more, one of the questions I ask is, so tell me when you messed up. Give, give me a place where you failed as a, as a coach. And mm-hmm. if the applicant says, well, no, all of my, my engagements have been successful, then I'm not terribly interested. I don't really believe that they have that depth of knowledge to be a coach. You learn <laughs> from failure. Uh, yeah. So why, why did that pique your interest? Well, you know, it's really interesting. That I, I agree there are a lot of people who call themselves coaches. I have heard people who think, like you said, that, um, being a scrum master for a couple of years automatically makes them a coach. Um, and I think there's a huge difference between coaching a team and coaching an, an organization like a program, which is a team of teams, right? Or right. even right. coaching an enterprise. The perspective that is necessary. And I know when I'm coaching, I coach those three things very, very differently. Uh, because they're concerns, the scale of the issues and the blockers that they're dealing with are very, very different. The organizational and the technical solutions are very, very different between a team and an enterprise, for example. Um, just just the needs, you know, we talked once about, you know, what executives are doing or making bets. You know, the mm-hmm. kind of bet you're making, it's a huge difference between funding an agile release train, for example, and a user story. A right. team is making a bet on a user story, right? A program is yep. making a bet on a feature. An enterprise is making a multi-million dollar bet on a, this team of teams and probably a team of team of teams. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I see you've adopted my uh, my phrasing of investment on uh, on funding software projects, right? It's always a bet. I do. The reason why, and I'll tell you the reason, because I liked it, but the other reason why mm-hmm. it really made it visceral is, you know, I'm getting, I'm working on uh, earning an MBA. And one of my instructors, he didn't say a bet, but he kept using the term gambling. Right. As executives, right. 
what we're doing is gambling. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take this as a sign from the universe that two people that I respect <laughs> are, are encouraging me to shift my language and be much more visceral from saying an investment to saying this is a bet. And you wanna, you wanna understand your odds and have the odds as much in your favor as is, is humanly possible. Right, as an executive. That, that, and I do right. think that that's that example, the way of phrasing it that way is much more visual. And you know, I love the visual. And it's also more visceral. Mm-hmm. Good. It's Good. more I'm real. Glad some, I'm glad I brought some sunshine into your life. By, by <laughs> <laughs> you have more than one. So here's something I haven't yeah. asked you about. I'm picked your brain up. When we're working on a Agile transformation for an organization. Do you think that top down or bottoms up are more is more effective? Um, yes, I think they are. They are as effective. <laughs> they're as effective as each other in that they're both going to fail. Or interesting, not, they won't always fail, but um, uh, they have very different characteristics. Uh, if if there's a top-down, and I'll tell you what I've seen in large organizations. If there's a top-down right. mandate, um, we are going to do agile, and everybody's going to be agile. Um, either Which we frequently see. No, well, either there's no training, there's no backup, there's no understanding, and I've seen in a, a number of organizations that the agile adoption means that my BAs are now agile BAs. My PMs are now <laughs> agile PMs. My developers are right. agile developers. Now, go on and have a good time. And there's no training, there's no backup, there's no coaching, um, and it fails um, because there's just no support. Or, or the other thing that happens is there's all training. Everybody becomes a scrum master, or everybody goes through two days of training um, because we're committed to doing this. And now, guess what? That fails because there's no real experience. There's no real understanding of what the organization is getting into because people. Adopting Agile, particularly adopting Scrum, because it's the it's the one where most of us start. It's a really good starting place. Um, but most people adopt that and think, "I'll read the book. How, how difficult can it be?" Because on the surface of it, mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. easy. It looks really straightforward. Uh, and so I find that executives um, say, "Go and do Agile. Will be great." Lots more uh, complexities around that, of course. But um, I find the top down really it, it falls down there, and the bottom up. Right means that the developers and maybe the BAs um, start understanding this and, and getting some excitement and, and doing work in a different way. It's really empowering. It, uh, those of the people who are listening to this who are developers will know it's really right, right. empowering, really, really cool stuff. Um, but the managers, the middle management and the directors and, and vice presidents don't understand what's different about it. So they start asking for deliverables in the same way. When am I going to get my 18 months worth of software, right? When's that release going to be in, in uh, uh, July 2020? What am I going to get? They still ask that question. And they fund right. projects in the same old way um, as opposed to having a funding model that, that really reflects what goes on in Agile. So inertia gets in the way, and, and the executives can't change fast enough because they don't understand. And, and I've found this a bit, bit of a slam on the Agile community. Um, we have tended to complain about executives not understanding, but if they just change everything, life would be good. It's very difficult for we as practitioners to go and talk to the executives and tell them what we want. 
probably because we don't have the experience uh, and don't know by and large. Right, right, and I think that, and I think that's very true. I mean, we, you and I have talked about this, but we both come from an executive background. We've been in those roles, but we both also know that when we meet with other um, agile practitioners, we're not. Rare it sounds like it's overstating it, but we're now representative of the community as a whole, right? When you mm-hmm. look at um, the consulting community for for agile. Most people, as you said earlier, come out of dev or they were a scrum master, right? They don't come from those executive ranks. But the other thing that kind of pinged down for me was um, top down or bottoms up, you hit on the middle. And I, I like to, you know, I stole this quote from someone else, but I like to call that the immutable layer of clay, that, that group of folks yeah. from the middle. And it seems like that's where most change management, agile or not, right? (laughs) That's where most change dies, is right there in the middle. Have you found a way of solving for that in your practice and and helping to to resolve that middle layer? Yeah, and and a lot of it is indeed having an understanding of the, the rounded environment that we're creating. Um, let me go back to the top-down uh, approach just a moment. Um, what mm-hmm. I find with middle management is, okay, an executive or several executives say, go and be agile. So the middle managers now are stuck, right? So my boss wants me to be agile. What should I do? I should make my entire organization agile right now as fast as I can because that's what my boss wants without really understanding what this means. So they send people to training, or they change their job titles, or they do something very surface so that they can scale this thing out. Right? I want something wide and not very deep. That's what middle managers tend to do, because we haven't given them the tools and the knowledge to do anything different. That's, that's what they do all the time. I mean, these poor mm-hmm. middle managers were saying, all of that, that all of your entire working life, you know, you've been command and control, and we've rewarded you for that, and you've been hiring, and you've been keeping on your people, and you've been you know, uh, really putting pressure on them to deliver. But we were just kidding. I don't want you to do that anymore. <laughs> I want you to change right, their right. behavior overnight. Poor middle managers, they don't know what's going on now, right? So they revert to all behavior. So you can't blame them for doing that. And then if you look at the bottom-up adoption, they are then stuck because my executives, my, my boss isn't telling me I've got to change, but my developers are. Mm-hmm. So maybe if I just pretend I'm going along, but still deliver the same old messages to my, my, my bosses, my directors, then life will be good. So again, they're stuck in the middle. So a, a really effective um, agile adoption, an agile transformation has to take into account everybody. And I do mean everybody. Um, mm-hmm. how, we, how we fund project change, how we measure progress changes, how we staff team changes, how we arrange the office changes. So middle managers are responsible for all of that to a greater or lesser extent. And so they have to understand what it means to, I'll say, to guide an agile project, not to manage it, but to guide an agile project. So, right. of course, they're stuck in the middle with not knowing what to do. I really feel for, uh, for uh, middle management, actually. I think I spend a lot of my time talking with them to try and get them on board. Yeah, it's working with that group of people that I started. I, I, I started using the term agile therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I'm working with an organization 
so often that's the group who were like, Rin, I really need to talk to you. And they're just, it's struggling or they need to vent or, you know, they're just frustrated. And so it, it winds up feeling like therapy sometimes. Well, that's, and that's I really emphasize where they are. Yeah, right. That's what natural coach should be doing. That, that one-on-one coaching is at least as important as the team coaching. Maybe more so. Uh, I often find it moves the needle more. Yeah, you get more traction with one-on-one coaching than team coaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole point there is you can you can make whatever the frustration is or the anger or the misunderstanding you can bring directly to that person's performance, that person's responsibility in a one-on-one session. Not talking abstract or not talking about the project or talking about the team, but one-on-one. And to be a good coach, you really have to be able to do that. You must be able right. to do that or, you, or you'll fail. And I think part of that is identifying and calling out change resistance. Mm-hmm. And I and I think most of us have run into those probably, you know, what's categorized by the change management thought leaders around this, right, is the two most common are just absolute resistance because this is the way we've always done it. And then the passive-aggressive resistance, where we're going to personalize the dislike of the change onto the change agent. So we don't like what this change is. We don't want to do this change. So we don't like that person. They're bossy. They're, I don't know, I'm trying to think of adjectives that are used, but, you know, they're condescending. They're not really helping us. You know, all that, they personalize it, right? Right. Um. Have you seen that, and have you seen others? And how have you addressed that with your clients? Well, I, I think I only see that oh once a week. So, so um, yeah, <laughs> honestly, I see it all the time. Uh, right now, only once a week. <laughs> only once a week. The engagement I'm running right now, uh, there are nine of us on the team, um, and over the last month, I've had to move two consultants around because of exactly that. So when when I get a client comes to me and says, you know, um, um, Gina over here, she just doesn't fit. We argue all the time. I don't like her style. Uh, the, the, you know, all of these, as you said, passive aggressive things. Um, my first question is, did you talk to Gina about it? And mm. often the answer is no, I didn't, because we don't give direct feedback. We're not that sort of organization. Um, you know, amazed how many times I get that answer quite literally. Um, and then I, so this is again the one-on-one coaching, right? Um, I talk with that person and say, oh, give me some examples and tell me how you think we should solve the problem. And inevitably it's, well, can you move Gina off and give me somebody else? Um, so I tend to do that because as soon as somebody puts up that barrier of saying, I don't want to be coached by this person, then they're not going to get coached by that person ever. Um, it, it's really um, an interesting point. But I do go further and I talk to the, the extended client team as well to maybe they're right. Maybe Gina is just not a very good coach, right? And I want to know that. Um, very rarely do I get that, though. Um, but I really want to right. figure out what's going on. Um, is it one person? Is it a team? Is it a situation? Um, so I do some research. But my immediate uh, thing is to move Gina off that onto another, another engagement, another client, or another team within the same client, and then find a replacement. But then watch very, very closely those interactions. And if it happens again, or if it starts looking like it's happening again, 
then I step in and I go and talk to the executives. Typically, there's a VP sponsor or a CIO or a CTO sponsor. Then I go and talk to the sponsor and say, hey, we've got a situation here with Freddie, you know, your, your, your director over here, Freddie. He's, um, he's trying to move my consultants out all the time. Can we talk about this and really investigate it? Um, so I'll, I'll stand up to that, absolutely. Uh, we have to. We're not there as, as consultants and as coaches to be just delivering good news. It's up to us to be the bad guys sometimes. Um, to, to move right. that needle to actually get people doing something. We have to spell out what it is we want them to do, when we want them to do it, and in a lot of cases, how we want them to apply agile principles to do it. Um, and to get people to change behaviors, sometimes you have to you have to be a bit of a hard nut there. Uh, um, so we, we can be the bad guys as outside consultants. Intact consultants are much more difficult because it's, it's very difficult to be the bad guy. Right, because you, 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 right, right. Because uh, what I've observed, and you know, I've had a similar engagement where I also was leading other coaches, um, and I took a very similar approach to you in saying, "Well, did you talk to so and so first? Um, mm-hmm. Because what I find is when they have to have a conversation with that coach. And I'm just going to say Tim. We'll call him Tim. Um, suddenly, the volume of their complaints goes down because they know Tim was there too. And so their ability to exaggerate and pile on kind of dissipates. And they're kind of forced into a situation where they have to be much more honest. Um, it's really easy to go, and we already, we know this from the internet, right? To go <laughs> and anonymously trash someone. It's very pain. It's very difficult to do that to, to that person, to their face, right? Um, and it, it is it is a challenge, but it requires a lot of trust from the leadership of the client. I often tell my clients, "Here's the behavior you need to be prepared for." If your people don't come and bitch about the coaches and how mean we are, we're clearly not doing our job. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah, yeah, like you said, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> changing behavior is not easy. It, it requires some pain, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and people don't yeah. like it. <laughs> So other than change resistance, right, what are some of the other common blockers to organizational transformation that you've run into? Um, most of the time it's people, especially under pressure, falling back on their old behaviors. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever we're under pressure to deliver, right, we, we revert back to what we think used to work, um, whether it worked or not in the past. But it's what I'm used to doing. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the time people aren't even aware that um, – that they're reverting. So I spend a lot of my time, especially with executives, talking about the sort of behaviors I want them to exhibit. Um, so when, when we start an, a, a transformation, um, typically I spend two days with executives, uh, taking them through some, some, it's not training, it's a workshop, right? Where we talk about what, what is this thing called agile? And also they don't, they don't need to know all of the internets, but they need to know some important things like how people behave, and how they deliver software. So I'm now going to deliver software, 
as early as I can and quite frequently. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, it won't all be it won't be cooked. It won't be completely finished. You're going to see little bits and pieces. You'd better be ready for that. Um, what I find in the first demo uh, or the first couple of demos, uh, one of two things happens when executives are there, and inevitably they're there because they're watching closely as they should be. They either say, exactly. oh, my gosh, it's not finished. Where's the rest of it? And you have to explain <laughs> that this is a trial balloon. You know, we, we worked two weeks on this, and we think this is what the business wants. We're showing them to get confirmation as what, what they want before we go uh, finish it up. Or, and I find this one more frequently, they say, oh, my gosh, are you kidding? Two weeks and you're delivering software? We've never done that around here before. That mm-hmm. is fantastic. You know, so it's a different behavior. It's a different focus. Um, and getting getting executives, uh, this is a tough one, but getting executives to collaborate across the organization is as difficult for executives, maybe more difficult than it is for anybody else, uh, developers, VAs, accountants, whomever, uh, because we, the execs are so tied up in trying to get the business of IT done that they forget to go and talk to their financial colleagues or their HR colleagues. Um, so they get to exist in this bubble. So giving them just to collaborate is a huge, huge issue. Uh, One of so my favorite... That's what I get them doing. One of my favorite moments in those early sprint reviews and demos, too, is um, when, going back to our bet thing, right, is when the executives see a couple of sprints in a row. You said you're going to do so many story points and you delivered those story points. You made that commitment. The reaction they have to that, the predictability that they're starting to see and the feedback that they give to the team. And most executives, it to the teams, it feels over the top because the executive's like, oh my God, you said you were going to do this, and you did that, and a little bit more. And the teams don't fully understand why that's such a big deal to an executive, right? That that predictability is huge because that puts the odds of each of those bets in the executive's favor. It makes that gambling a lot less gambling, right? (laughs) And it makes them feel more like they're the house instead of playing against the house. Um, and it, and for me, it's always like, I love that moment, that tipping point. Usually it's, you know, after sprint two or after sprint three. Um, and the executive is just like, wow, you know, blown away. And, and the teams are just, wait a minute, what Lynn's been telling me is right. (laughs) This is a big deal. Making my commitment is a huge deal, right? It's it's a great feeling. I'll warn you though, I'm not actually a great fan of estimates, um, of story points, because it's so easy to start using them as a club. When you say you deliver 60 story points, and, and you know, I, I would think you should deliver 70. I'm, you know, why didn't you deliver 70? What's wrong with you people? You know, uh, it's another lack of understanding, because we don't we don't typically go all the way into detail when we talk estimates, especially with managers. And, and, uh, and, and that's why I do some mitigating things. Right, like I'll have them communicate the performance against their plan, so they won't say, "Okay, we said we we're going to do 70 story points, and we did 68." They'll say, "We did what is that, 97 something percent 
of our commitment. And then talk about why they missed that 3%, right? And here's what we learned from that 3%. So I have found some ways. Yeah. I, I like to turn it around, though, and rather than talking about points or time or money or bill, whatever we're, we're measuring on, um, mm-hmm. I ask the business people in the room, are you happy with what we delivered? Because it's more important to meet that business need than it is to meet some arbitrary number. Remember that, that, that one of the, okay. the biggest principles in Agile is that the business runs the project, not IT. Mm-hmm. The business right. runs the project. And that is such a hard concept to get across. Um, again, we're taking away everybody's practices they've been doing for decades. Uh, saying, just kidding, I want you to do something new now. Um, and so having the business talk about, yeah, I know we didn't get as many points done as we thought, but does this meet your needs? Does this meet what right. you really want to have happen? And if they say yes, then oh, all the estimates go away, and they should. So you're going to find that balance, I find. You know, rather right, and that's why. Or another, you're going to find that balance. So here's one to ask you. I like to have the product owners run the sprint review and demo. For that reason, that principle exactly. Right. And and especially when we're working on anything that has a very end-user, non-technical end-user application, to have the product owner run it, has a very different message, visual message to the stakeholders, to the audience, um, than having, say, the developer, a developer run it. Um, And I've definitely seen that. We both have a lot of financial services in our background. When working on new financial products, I've definitely seen a difference in the audience and how they read the demo when it is, you know, a business person doing the demo than a technical. Yeah, it's way different, isn't it? If there's any chance at all of the business person running the demo, that's perfect. Get your hands on the and tell me what you like and don't like. And what they talk about is completely different, right? Mm -hmm. The product owner is automatically going to go into the user or the customer experience and talk about the business value. I've seen that over and over and over again. Um, where the technical folks are going to talk about the technology, right? And and most of the audience is thinking, what's the business value? Why did we take this bet? And they want to know how the bet did, how did they do, right? Um, And having the product owner really own that demo, and when we look at a team of teams and we're putting together a systems demo, so you've got multiple applications and the output of multiple scrum teams. Having the product people, the business people around that demo too is really eye-opening for, for executives and business leaders, yep. I find. Yep. So this, uh, and this especially sales and business. marketing folks. Sorry, what was that? That's right. There's work uh, that James Shaw and Diana Lawson did some time ago um, called, uh, what would they call it, um, uh, Agile Fluency. I can't remember, the, but it, it's about um, an Agile team's uh, adoption of Agile Fluency. And they start by, you know, everybody gets into Agile and starts building code, right? That's what it's doing. We're going to build right. code faster, better, higher quality, more business value, whatever. Uh, and that's great for upfront. But after a while, 
uh, and you, you, only, you describe this very closely there, um, after a while, people start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm seeing real business value out of what I'm doing. Both developers, um, BAs, technical people, and the business. So one day the light bulb goes on, and they say, value, not just delivering stuff, it's value. How can I really focus on delivering value? And that's when I, I see the change that you just described, when people are in the demo and they start not being wowed by the front end, but saying, all this database work that we did, I can see how it relates to business value. And that's mm-hmm. very, very cool when I, when I see organizations doing that. Uh, and this, this whole cultural change starts to happen around that. But when, when teams get from just building code in an agile way to focusing on delivering value, that's such a fundamental shift. Just have everybody looking at the business, not, not just the business. Right, and, that, and that's really when we see everything change, right? That's yeah. when yeah. finance, the finance folks shift to agile cost accounting model, right? We see HR switch to team rewards and recognition, um, and rewards and recognition no longer being tied to a calendar, but being tied to the yeah. delivery of business value, right? Um, we we see those bigger, more seismic shifts in how the organization it runs and thinks about how it does business, yeah. right? Yeah, we're seeing that change. Yeah, it's everything becomes that. about everything becomes about doing business value instead of doing work and measuring how much work. Are we Instead doing? of doing work, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I, I rarely like... get out of bed and say, "I want to. I just want to work today." You know, I I am one of those people who just always gets out of bed and was like, "I want to do something fun. I want to do something that adds value. I want to do something that's exciting and new." And you know, I, you know, it's those those more intangible things, right? I, you know, but just the idea of going in and, and toiling away doesn't excite me. Not at all. I completely agree. <laughs> so, last question before we go. So, when we're t- t- talking to an organization who's thinking about an agile transformation, what are some tips that you give them to help them uh, Help them make the transformation as easy for their organization as possible. Um, so the, the very first question I ask is, why the heck would you do this? Right. Why would you invest in this? Why would you place this bet? Mm-hmm. What is it that's going wrong that you feel you need to change? Um, and, and what I'm hoping comes back is we have this big problem. Um, we can't we can't deliver because our pathways are too slow or we can't get organized or we don't have, we have no discipline to get things done. That's a good answer. Mm-hmm. The answer is, well, I heard, I heard Agile will make me faster, better, stronger, better looking, you know, all of these really good things <laughs> um, uh, without them experiencing it. So, uh, right. and I, so I, I try to get organizations to understand that this is, yet again, a business decision. It's not a technology decision. Yeah, we have a big bearing on technology answers, right? We, we typically start in the technology organization. But why are you doing this? Why are you really doing this? Um, and I also, if I have the opportunity, go and talk to the business community in that organization and say, how do you want to work with your technology organization? And then focus on those things. 
um, invariably, and I mean 100% of the time over the last 16 years, oh gosh, I've been doing mm-hmm. that for a long time, uh, 100% of the time, the business people say, we want to collaborate more, we want to come up with business ideas, and have technology push back on them to give us better ways of doing our work. And then mm-hmm. I want to see the work they're doing on a frequent basis. Oh my gosh, that sounds an awful lot like Agile to me, without actually understanding it's Agile. So what I tend to do is, is switch around from the technology um, uh, adoption of Agile, it's important, to really understand the business reasons for doing it. Because that then gives the entire organization something to chase, not just I want a better IT organization. No, I want to solve business problems in a better way. That's the real answer. Okay, so that, that's what I try to focus on whenever I can. Good. Is that your question, or did I go down a rabbit trail later? <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely answered the question. Because the thing is, I start with the why as well. And, and usually that leads us for a little bit into the what. What do we want to accomplish from this transformation? Um, and I try to stay away from getting too much into the details of the how with the executive. Right. Um, right. Tell me what you want, and I will help deliver that. Yeah. Exactly. And and why you want it? What's the purpose? You know, that is one of the things that is we know over and over again. We've been told this for literally a couple of hundred years. Okay. Human beings. I actually take it back a couple of thousand years because it goes all the way back to Aristotle. Human beings are highly motivated by the why. We need to know why. Why is painfully important to us. And so I always counsel leaders to start with the why. That's the most important question you can ever answer for your organization. Why are we doing this? And then you have to let your employees just sit back and let them decide if that's a why that they're on board with that will motivate them. Most of them, it probably will. There's always going to be some that it won't. Right? Yep. And that's okay. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, this, this it's human being, we need diversity. Really <laughs> we do. We do. Right. Right. So I want to thank you, Paul, for joining us this week. I really appreciate it. Um, and if, you know, anybody wants to check out the Guardian podcast, you know where you can find us on my website, com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud and a few other places. If you're interested in learning more about Agile Fluency, um, you can look it up at martinfuller.com or even on the agilefluency.com website. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. And come back next time. Bye.